0: Last time we spoke about the disastrous first Arakan campaign, and the Pacific Military Conference of 1943. Yes, Mr. Irwin had royally messed up the Arakan offensive, so much so, he had gradually brought his bitter rival, General Slim, into the mix. While Irwin failed, Slim gradually was placed in operational control and would soon unleash a box strategy against General Koga's forces in Burma. On the planning front, the war between Douglas MacArthur and Ernest King raged on, but compromises were finally hashed out. The July 2nd Directive became the Elkton Plan, which in turn would evolve into Operation Cartwheel. The Allies were learning how to play nice together, in the Pacific, at last. General MacArthur was gradually shifting the war towards his own personal goals. However, while all of this was going on, the Japanese were also forming their own plans, which would soon be unleashed. This episode is Operation Igo. Welcome back to the Pacific War Podcast week by week, and I'm your dutiful host, Craig Watson. But before we can begin, I just want to remind you all that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of Kings and Generals over at YouTube. Perhaps you want to learn a bit more about World War II? Kings and Generals has an assortment of episodes on World War II and much, much more. So go give them a look over at YouTube. So please, subscribe to Kings and Generals over at YouTube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com slash kingsandgenerals. And hey, don't forget about our sister podcast over at The Age of Conquest, The Fall and Rise of China podcast, written and narrated by me. And after all that, if you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel, over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing up my multi-part series on China's warlord era. Also, just a friendly reminder, I now myself have a Patreon account, which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And this month's exclusive podcast is on General Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident. Check it out. It would mean a lot to me. It is April of 1943. A year ago, the Empire of the Rising Sun stood proud and victorious over the Pacific. The Japanese had taken Malaya, the Philippines, the Dutch East Indies, Burma, and pretty much anywhere else they went, victory was at hand. Yet, as Admiral Yamamoto moved his flag from his super-battleship Yamato to the Musashi, he looked quite withered down. The past fourteen months since the great raid on Pearl Harbor had aged him considerably. His close-cropped hair had turned almost entirely gray, and his eyes looked discolored. It was rare to see him leave his quarters, and whenever he did, it was quite brief usually him waving his hat in the air as a departing sign to a squadron of aircraft. Rarely did he join his fellow staff officers for a game of ring-toss on the deck. In a letter he wrote at the end of January of 1943, he asserted he only set foot ashore four times since the previous August, only to check in on the sick and wounded men at the hospitals or attend funerals. Critics of Yamamoto would claim he actually made considerable amounts of visits to the Naval Restaurant on an island in the lagoon. This Naval Restaurant was actually a well-known brothel near Yokosuka Naval Base in Tokyo Bay. The commander-in-chief seemed resigned to his fate. When he was asked in October of 1942 what he would do after Japan had won the war, he replied this, I imagine I'll be packed off either to the guillotine or sent to Helena. On most occasions, he would openly declare he did not believe he would live throughout the war. Yamamoto mourned the loss of so many IGN officers and sailors, and he was especially saddened by the loss of the commanders who refused to leave their doomed ships. Yamamoto had actually campaigned to reform the principle that a captain could and should honorably survive the destruction of his ship, but it was to little avail. The belief was so hardwired into the Japanese Naval Officer Corps at this point. Yamamoto knew Japan was staggering towards a catastrophic defeat, but he could not openly say it to those around him. He had tossed everything he could to thwart the war in the first place, warning everyone of the great industrial power of America that would gradually overwhelm Japan. His operation against Midway in June of 1942 was a major gambit, aimed at forcing a decisive victory to bring the Americans closer to the negotiating table. The utter failure at Midway had ensured the war would be prolonged, and it would become a war of attrition, and one that Japan could not hope to win. On the morning of April 3rd, 1943, Admirals Yamamoto and Yugaki, accompanied by more than a dozen officers of the combined fleet staff, boarded two Kamanishi flying boats en route for Rabaul. The battles of Guadalcanal and Bunagona Sanananda were extremely heavy setbacks to Yamamoto's plans of extending the defensive perimeter towards the east of Australia so that it could be strangled of supplies. The disaster that occurred at the Battle of the Bismarck Sea showcased how vulnerable their shipping lanes had become. The state of their land-based aviation was abysmal. It failed to protect the convoy sent to Ley, resulting in a terrible loss. As Commander Toshikazu Omai stated, The land-based air groups at Rabaul were not effective, largely because there were only a few expert pilots amongst them. Vice-Admiral Lugaki was even harsher when he added, We cannot expect much of the land-based air force, partly because of a passive atmosphere amongst them. Admiral Kuzaka's 11th Air Fleet had suffered tremendous losses from a series of serious ongoing issues but two of them were of vital importance. Number one, the poor health and low morale of those at Rabaul. Men were succumbing to widespread diseases, such as malaria and chronic diarrhea. Number two, the terrible situation when it came to replacing men, such as their valuable veterans. As Admiral Yamamoto put it, They used to say that one Zero fighter could take on five to ten American aircraft but that was at the beginning of the war. Since losing so many good pilots at Midway, we've had difficulty in replacing them. Even now, they still say 1-0 can take on two enemy planes, but the enemy's replacement rate is three times ours. The gap between our strengths is increasing every day, and to be honest, things are looking black for us now. The new recruits were unfamiliar with the aircraft employed by Kuzaka's command, requiring them to be retrained upon their arrival to Rabaul. Without their veteran pilots to train these men, the task took longer and resulted in less capable pilots and crews. The replacement issue for aircrews was a fleet-wide issue forcing the IJN to shorten their training syllabus for commissioned and enlisted pilots by two months. To achieve this reduction, the amount of instructional time devoted to skill areas like tactics, gunnery, and formation flying were reduced, or in some cases even eliminated. The veterans who began the war in the third position of a three-plane sector, and were still alive, now took up the role of Shotai or Chutai leadership. Shotai leaders were responsible for flights of three aircraft, and Chutai leaders were responsible for nine aircraft, or better said, three Shōtais. However, many of these men did not really have the necessary experience to assume such responsibilities. On March 25th, a directive was established to quote, "...create a superior, impregnable, strategic position." In other words, Tokyo was demanding the army and navy come up with a plan to stop the Allied southern offensive. Tokyo wanted the two services to actually work together, so that they could defend the precious gains they had made in the early part of the war like their holdings in New Guinea, which were currently being hammered by MacArthur's forces. To implement these new directives, General Imamura summoned a conference on Rabaul for April the 12th. For the army, commanders of the 17th and 19th Armies as well as the 6th Air Division would all be in attendance. During the conference, it was decided General Heikotake's 17th Army would take responsibility for defending the Northern Solomons in coordination with the Navy. They would also have to help assist the Navy, who were expecting an Allied attack directed at the Central Solomons. General Adachi's 18th Army was given the responsibility of defending Lai Salamawa, but because of the shipping lane crisis, this would have to be done mostly via land routes. They were going to establish a major overland and coastal supply route, linking Madang and western New Britain to the Lai area to aid this. Furthermore, naval and air bases would be built up in the eastern part of New Guinea to aid Lieutenant General Itahanagichi's 6th Air Division so that he could operate in the region. Despite all of these grand plans, American air power was already making Tokyo Express runs in places like Finchaffen impossible. The Japanese war effort in New Guinea was gradually being torn apart by constant air raids. Therefore, the only way to get men and supplies to places like Ley would be by using the ever-glamorous submarine or barge methodology. Now, that is all for the Imperial Japanese Army Boys planning session, but what about Yamamoto and the Naval Gang? By the time of the conference, MacArthur's efforts in New Guinea had basically ruined Yamamoto's expansionist strategies. A complete strategic rethink was now necessary. Yamamoto was quartered in a cottage high on a hill behind the town of Rabaul. He spent the following week inspecting airfields and other military installations, meeting with the local army and naval commanders all around New Britain. As was typical of him, he bid good luck to the departing air squadrons with his usual wave of his hat. Yamamoto set to work creating a new offensive directive erected as part of the March 25th plan. The IJN planned for an air campaign against allied positions in New Guinea and the Solomons. The 11th Air Fleet on its lonesome would not be able to mount such an effective strike, thus Yamamoto called upon the 3rd Fleet to augment them. Admiral Ozawa, who led the 3rd Fleet, voiced opposition to this, not wanting his precious elite units to be squandered. But he eventually gave in and provided aircraft carriers and agreed to supervise plans for the new operation. At the same time, it was decided that Yamamoto and Ozawa would shift their headquarters temporarily to Rabaul, this would prove to be a fateful mistake on Yamamoto's part. Yes, while he was on Rabaul, he would decide he was going to take a tour of some Ford airfield bases. But that tour was announced using radio to other commanders. His operations officer, Commander Yasuji Watanabe, would go on the record complaining that the information about Yamamoto's visit to one airfield in particular, on Balali should have been done by courier and not by radio. But the other communications officer replied, This code only went into effect on April the 1st, and it cannot be broken. He was referring to the JND code, and it could be broken, and would be broken. More about that later on. Now, the Kaku Zuiho, Junior and Hio would toss up 160 aircraft. 54 valves, 45 gates, and 96 Zeros to augment the 155 aircraft of Admiral Kuzaka, pushing them to a total strength of around 350 aircraft. The aircraft were dispersed to multiple airfields such as Buka and Kahili on Bougainville, and Balali in the short ones. Now before Yamamoto and his team launched their new offensive, Admiral Kuzaka decided to do a preliminary fighter sweep down the slot on April 1st. He hoped to draw out a large portion of the Allied air power in Guadalcanal to soften them up. Cruzaca launched a first wave of 32 and a second wave of 25 zeros, which intercepted 42 fighters of Admiral Mason Comersol's command. To just remind everyone, Comersol was a new command that unified the Southwest and South Pacific's air power. The Allied Air Force consisted mostly of Wildcats and some P 38s and the occasional F 4U Corsairs. They were intercepted over the Russell Islands, causing a giant melee of dogfights lasting for over three hours. The Americans had a home field advantage over the Japanese, managing to shoot down nine zeros at the cost of five Wildcats and that one Fortune Corsair. It was not exactly a promising start for the Japanese. As usual, both sides of the air battle submitted exaggerated reports back home. The Americans claimed to have downed 18 zeros. the Japanese claimed that they had downed no less than 47 American fighters. So yeah, the Japanese claimed that they had shot down more aircraft than they had actually encountered. Now it was on April the 3rd when Yamamoto and his staff arrived in Rabaul, and he personally took command of the upcoming operation alongside Admirals Ozawa and Kusaka. Yamamoto had accurately anticipated the Allied advance into the Solomons in the New Guinea area, and he thought that they would focus on the subjugation of Rabaul in the end. Within five days of the Battle of Guadalcanal being officially declared on February the 9th of 1942, Lieutenant General Kenny had authorized a plan to take down Rabaul. The plan had commenced on the night of February the 14th with a bombing raid consisting of 12 B-29s from the 63rd Bomb Squadron. They targeted the fuel dumps and munitions. A second wave of 10 B-29s from the 65th Bomb Squadron came in dropping incendiaries upon the town of Rabaul itself. The Japanese had managed no fighter interceptions. Yamamoto had further predicted the Allies would launch a double-pronged advance through the New Guinea and northern Solomon area. To meet this advance, he had set up a ring of airfields around Rabaul. His visit to Balali Airfield was part of developing the rings, and it would be his death sentence in the end. The result of these plans led to a triangular combat zone with Port Moresby on its western point, Guadalcanal at its east, Rabaul at its northern apex. Yamamoto knew the U.S. forces would advance under the cover of air superiority, which in turn depended upon their ability to build forward airfields. In anticipation of this, Yamamoto had, as we mentioned, gathered a massive buildup of aircraft with the intent to hammer the Allies' ability to supply materials and build further airfields. The battle for Henderson Field on Guadalcanal was the first of these contests, and many would follow. Yamamoto hoped the shorter lines of supply from airfields closer to Rabaul would give them an advantage over the Americans. But despite all the claims of their great air victories, Yamamoto's personal tour was revealing the very opposite. In fact, as Yamamoto used the post-Guadalcanal lull in action to bolster his defenses for the anticipated battle ahead, Admiral Halsey had likewise prepared his forces for their advance into the Central and Northern Solomons. Halsey would also have a number of new toys to play with, such as the Chance Vought F-4U Corsair that I had mentioned, and the Grumman F-6F Hellcat. Four new airbases were built upon Guadalcanal, and during March of 1943, allied bombers made sporadic attacks on the Japanese airfields at Balali, Kahili, Shortland Island, and Munda. On top of all that, large-scale reconnaissance efforts were being made to get a good picture of the Japanese build-up of their airfields. When reconnaissance found out that the Japanese were developing a seaplane base off southern Bougainville, the Americans launched a dawn fighter attack on March 28th, led by Captain Lanfear of the 70th Squadron. Six P-38s destroyed eight Japanese seaplanes. Now, after a week of sporadic bombing raids from both sides, Allied coast watchers on the New Guinea coast indicated a major offensive was afoot. Admiral Yamamoto's grand air campaign was codenamed Operation Igo with Attack Day X set for April the 5th. The first target was to be Guadalcanal, but bad weather forced a postponement of two days. Japanese reconnaissance since March the 25th had indicated the Allies had roughly 300 aircraft on the island, alongside transports, cargo ships, warships, and other goodies going between Lunga Point and Tulagi. In the early hours of April the 7th, Yamamoto unleashed a massive strike force consisting of over 224 planes. The largest striking force since the attack on Pearl Harbor. 67 VALs and 157 Zeros were en route to smash Guadalcanal. But the Allies enjoyed great intelligence and received several warnings of the impending offensive. The Coast Watchers were hard at work transmitting their sightings. Rear Admiral Mark Mitscher, the new commander of aerosols, scrambled 76 fighters consisting of Wildcats, Lightnings, Aero Cobras and Kittyhawks from Henderson Field, Milna Bay, and other outlying airfields. Despite the prior warnings, the Allied scramble was rather disorderly, and to make matters worse, the Japanese cleverly split up their attack force into four groups to confuse the Allied radar systems. Four squadrons of VALs were preceded by two sweeps of Zeros, which were intercepted by three squadrons of Wildcats. Marine First Lieutenant James E. Sweet of the VMF-221 was credited with shooting down seven valves and possibly an eighth using his Wildcat. His aircraft was badly mauled during the combat, forcing him to make a water landing outside Tulagi Harbor. He would be awarded the Medal of Honor for this great feat. Despite valiant efforts made by the Allies, the VALs laid havoc to Tulagi Anchorage. The destroyer USS Aaron Ward, New Zealander Corvette Moa, and the U.S. tanker Kanawa were sunk. The crews over in Henderson Field were fortunate as it was not hit too hard, as the dogfights broke up most of the Japanese Vals and Zeros who were forced to back off going towards Bougainville. For their efforts, the Japanese lost 12 Zeros and 12 Vals. The Japanese pilots claimed to have downed 41 Allied aircraft and 12 major warships, which would actually turn out to be seven wildcats and the three ships I previously mentioned. With what seemed to be a large scale success for Operation X. Well, this made Yamamoto feel confident enough to decide to launch Operation Y of IGO. While Operation X of IGO was directed at Guadalcanal, Operation Y would hit New Guinea. On April 11th, 27 VALs and 73 Zeros departed Rabaul to hit Oro Bay, which was adjacent to the rapidly expanding airdrum complex on Dobodura. The Allies scrambled 50 aircraft consisting of Lightnings and Warhawks of the 7th, 8th, and 9th squadrons. The VALs managed to sink a US cargo ship, heavily damaged a transport, and an Australian minesweeper. The next day, Yamamoto traveled to the Vanucano Airdrum to personally send off another strike and announced he would do a tour of the forward bases of Boon, Balali, and the Shortland Islands. The signal was picked up by Allied listening posts. Cryptanalysts at Station Hypo, led by Joseph Rochefort, decrypted the message and pronounced it to be a jackpot. The message referred to Yamamoto, which was easily deduced and the geographic designators for Rabaul, Bilali, and Boon, which were easily extracted. Better than that, the message contained the specific information that Yamamoto would be traveling on a medium bomber escorted by six fighters, and would arrive at RYZ at 8 a.m. This would put Yamamoto's aircraft over the southern end of Bungayville on the morning of the 18th, a location just within the fighter range of Henderson Field. I will not be speaking any more of this, as it will be discussed in depth in a future episode. It's just a tease of something that is to come. At Vanu Yamamoto presented himself in a crisp white uniform waving his hat to the crews of 43 Bettys followed up shortly by 65 zeros. A second group of 66 zeros assisted the raid to perform a sweep, leaving a combined total of 174 aircraft. They flew in two large formations with an initial course direction going straight towards Milna Bay. Allied radar picked them up, prompting General Kenny to scramble every fighter he had in the area. However, the course the Japanese took was a feint, and without warning they broke out, going across the Owen Stanley Range en route straight for Port Moresby. 44 Allied fighters were able to intercept them, but many of the bombers managed to get past them. The bombers hit the airstrips, damaged installations, alongside 15 grounded aircraft. The Japanese would claim sinking a transport anchored in the harbor, and the destruction of 28 enemy planes in the sky, though only two P-39s were actually shot down, at the cost of two Zeros and seven Bettys. On April the 14th, Yamamoto again personally waved off another attack, this time targeting Milna Bay. 23 VALs and 75 Zeros were launched from carriers Hiyo and Junyo, joined by 54 fighters and 44 Bettys from the 11th Air Fleet, making a total of 196 aircraft. Here, the Japanese scored some luck, because as a result of the air raid against Port Moresby, the Allies actually had to reroute most of their shipping to Milna Bay. The Allies scrambled 44 fighters, 36 Kitty Hawks from Milna Bay and 8 lightnings coming out of Dobudura, to intercept them. Despite the efforts of the Allied airmen, Japanese bombers broke through making their way to Milna Bay in several waves. The high-level bombers dropped at least 100 bombs over the anchorage while the dive bombers attacked the Allied shipping. The Dutch troop transport, van Hemskut, was forced to beach itself after suffering several hits lighting her ablaze. The British cargo ship, Gorgon, was also hit many times and lit on fire. Another Dutch transport, van Uelthorn, and Australian minesweepers Waga and Campunda were damaged by near misses. In the battle over the sky, one Kitty Hawk was shot down, Four P-40s were severely damaged and one lightning was forced to make a crash landing. The Japanese claimed to have sunk three large and one medium transport, heavily damaged six transports, and shot down over 44 aircraft. During the air battle, one Lieutenant Richard Bong was starting to make a name for himself having shot down a pair of Bettys. He would earn a lot of attention from General Kenny, who described him as such. As a little blond-haired Norwegian boy, best watch that boy bong." The Japanese claims were so incredible, upon hearing of it, Emperor Hirohito himself sent a message stating this. "'Please convey my satisfaction to the Commander-in-Chief of the Combined Fleet, and tell him to enlarge the war result more than ever. To contrast this, on the other side of the coin, General Kenney made some remarks about the intense air raids. The way Yamamoto had failed to take advantage of his superiority in numbers and position since the first couple of months of the war was a disgrace to the airman's profession. No, the reason behind his rather scathing remark was because, apart from the rare exception of mass attacks, the Japanese attacks were marked by their use of aircraft in penny packets. What Kenny did not know, however, was that the IGN's air forces were being hampered heavily by logistical issues. Their inability at this time was a result of a lack of experienced aviation engineers, ground crews, adequate airfield facilities, and airfield equipment. They simply were not the same aviation force that had hit Pearl Harbor in 1941. The spear had been heavily blunted. Yamamoto planned to perform another fighter sweep on the 16th, but reconnaissance flights failed to turn up adequate targets on New Guinea's northeastern coast. On April the 17th, Yamamoto's chief of staff, Vice Admiral Ugaki Matome, held a conference to review the lessons learnt from the new air offensive. The staff were reluctant to admit a startling and horrifying truth. Hundreds of aviators had been burnt to a crisp because the aircraft engineers messed up royally installing the protected fuel tanks. This led countless aircraft to catch on fire from minor hits. Even tracer rounds lit them on fire. When Japanese aircraft saw that they were on fire, the pilots assumed they had been scored a fatal hit from the enemy, Though, in most cases, the aircraft were minorly damaged. But in the face of this, many of these pilots decided to choose to kamikaze their aircraft, thus again losing valuable pilots. Thus, Operation IGO was finished. Despite all the unrealistic exaggerated reports from the Japanese pilots, the entire operation only really amounted to setting back the American operations in the Solomons for about 10 days. While the Japanese believed they'd inflicted tremendous damage, in reality, the only real significance for the allies was to postpone some bombing raids and some mine laying activity. That was about it. The most significant consequence of Operation Igo would actually end up being Admiral Yamamoto's decision to personally carry out a tour of some forward air bases, as he was trying to raise morale for the men, like he had done in Rabaul that decision would have a very dire effect on the future of the empire of the rising sun i would like to take this time to remind all of you that this podcast is only made possible through the efforts of kings and generals over at youtube please go subscribe to kings and generals over at youtube and continue to help us produce this content by checking out www.patreon.com kings and generals and hey don't forget about our sister podcast over at the age of conquest the fall and rise of china podcast written and narrated by me. And if after all that you are still hungry for some more history, why don't you check out my personal channel, The Pacific War Channel over at YouTube, where I'm just now finishing up a multi-part series on China's warlord era. And just a friendly reminder, I myself now have a Patreon account which can be found at www.patreon.com slash thepacificwarchannel. And this month's Patreon exclusive podcast is on General Kanji Ishiwara, the mastermind behind the Mukden incident. Check it out, it would mean a lot to me. Yamamoto's Operation Igo was quite the lackluster offensive, despite what the Japanese pilots were claiming to their leadership. The leadership likewise believed the claims, or were unwilling to see the truth of the matter. They had only accosted the Allies about 10 days in the Solomons.